You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we feature an in-studio conversation with Joshua Levitt. Joshua Levitt has pursued spiritual practice intensively since the late 1980s, including extensive stays in Israel and India, living for five years on an ashram in the U.S., and working closely with spiritual teachers from the Baal tradition, which originated in Bengal, India. We'll get started with that show after a short musical break. Musical interludes on this show are from a companion CD to the book, The Baal Tradition, Sahaj, Vision, East and West. This first piece is a short chant called Yogi Ramsarat Kumar Chant with vocals by Doug Folker. This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Tayu Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol. Excited to be here for this conversation today. This week on the show, we feature an in-studio conversation with Joshua Levitt. Joshua Levitt has pursued spiritual practice intensively since the late 1980s. He has spent extended periods of time in Israel and India, lived for five years on an ashram in the U.S., and worked closely with spiritual teachers from the Baal tradition, which originated in Bengal, India. He holds a master's degree in religious studies from the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley and was chief editor of the spiritual journal Who's Rowing Your Boat? 
In his business life, Joshua is the managing partner of New Line Consulting, a leadership and strategic planning firm that works primarily with leaders in the National Park Service. His creative writing has won national awards and been featured in Parabola Magazine and various literary journals. He currently divides his time between Bozeman, Montana, and the newly founded In Cahoots Artist in Residency in Petaluma, California. Joshua Levitt, welcome to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you, Stuart. Very good to be here. Uh, Great to have you. And um, I'll begin uh, with our usual question to uh, first-time guests, and that is to invite you to cast your mind back and look at any mm, particular experiences and any... Anything that stands out that, in retrospect, you would point to and say, ah, that's prefigured the direction I would go. That was a harbinger of of the direction my life would later take. Yeah, um, I, it's a wonderful way to start the, the process because it grounds it in the personal. Um, and I was thinking about this. I've listened to the show before, and I know that you often start. And... What occurred to me um, was a meeting that I had um, as my interest in spiritual practice came uh, as a teenager growing up in Berkeley, California. Hmm. I came from a secular family, had no some minor Jewish observance uh, culturally, but really no uh, significant and meaningful spiritual orientation. Um, And as a young person um, uh, in my teens, had some direct experiences of 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 the sacred mm. that um were the single thing that i um found offered an alternative and a sense of hope and inspiration and purpose in the face of a world that seemed uh very insane to me which was sort of the world that it seemed that the grown-ups were living in um, and it seemed a, a very dangerous and chaotic world. And so, uh, but these direct experiences, there, I, I had a direct experience that no matter how much suffering existed in the world, no matter how insane uh, life seemed to be in many ways uh, in, in, in the adult world, um, there was still something sacred. And so that, that was really the, the touchstone for me of what evolved into a, into a spiritual search and a desire for spiritual practice. Um, so I had that, uh, just, was there a context within which that occurred or, yeah, I mean, you know, first love, heartbreak, all the teenage, (laughs) typical kind of teenage things. Um, but the, the particular encounter that came to mind, uh, when I was thinking about this question was a a meeting with a man, uh, who was a homeless on the streets of Berkeley Mm -hmm. And looking back now, I would say he was my first spiritual teacher, mm-hmm. although he wasn't formally any kind of spiritual teacher. But when I look back at the essence of my kind of connection with him, that's who he was to me. Um, and part of the reason that I start with that is because that um, brief encounter or, or short times that I spent in his company really prefigured everything that's happened since then, partly because he was very much of a, of a Western Baal in spirit. I don't know that he even knew about the Baal tradition from Bengal, India, mm-hmm. which has um, 
informed my spiritual practice for many, many years. But he was a musician, uh, and he had a band that was kind of legendary in the East Bay for these many hours long uh, kind of trance-like performances. Um, and he was uh, li- he was literally living homeless, the way the original bowels from Bengal, uh, India do, uh, when I met him. Um, but maybe the most important thing was that he was, uh, in my experience, a very profound mystic. Um, and through times that I spent with him at an early formative period, before I really pursued any kind of traditional formal spiritual disciplines, before I spent time in India or Israel exploring ancient traditions of mystical pursuit, uh, just this sort of chance meeting with this, this one man, um, I guess it catalyzed some spiritual experience for me that to this day is some of the deepest direct experience I've ever had. And one of the, one of the experiences in particular, I um, he was an African-American and Native American guy and, and drew a lot of his inspiration as an artist and as a kind of a shaman and a visionary from those traditions, both Native American and African-American. And... Um, so he and all of this he incorporated into kind of a personal mythos that he created and that was infused all of the music that he made with his band which was called Okisha Paradox Um, and when I met him he was homeless uh, but he eventually uh, started working uh, at a at a a child care facility for little kids he was taking care of little kids um, and he got him got himself a place and and one night uh, we were at his apartment in Oakland, and he was playing some music on his guitar. And I had the experience of uh, love coming through him and the music in a way that I think to this day I've never quite experienced anything like it. It, it was this sense of, of this love that was completely impersonal, like it wasn't... He wasn't gazing into my eyes. We weren't having this moment of profound... Commu- he was just making his music. But through him, something... Uh, I experienced something that was much vaster than any anything that could have originated with one human person. Mm. So, So part of the reason that this was so formative for me as it was this experience that a human being can be a conduit for a an experience of of love an experience of something sacred that feels infinitely vaster than any individual human and and that is uh you know later as i encountered the bowel tradition and i became a practitioner and a in a Western lineage that is deeply immersed in and, and inspired by the Baal tradition in Bengal, I came to recognize that as sort of a central tenet of Baal spiritual practices, that uh, the sacred incarnates in the form of human beings, and that that mode of relationship with the sacred through the vehicle of, of, of human beings, as flawed as we are, that's, I mean, that's sort of very central to the whole Baal tradition. So, something about this combination of music, his his spirit, his just sort of intangible kind of way that he was, which uh, reminds me very much of Indian Bengal, uh, Bengali Baals that I've met and spent time with, 
uh, and that sense of, of, of love and something vast um, appearing in a human form. Oh, that's, that, thank you for sharing that. That's, that's interesting. I, my own uh, Stuart's and my teacher, Robert Ennis, also um, spoke of his first teacher as being a homeless guy that he met in New York. Mm. Um, and, you know, he didn't speak much about much about the, mm. that, but it was clearly equally as important to him as, as I think um, what you've just related is mm-hmm. to you. So, um, so, so that's a... Um, um i I like the way you um described that it wasn't him, but it was something coming through him or something that you were perceiving in him mm-hmm. or something like that yeah I mean, it's, it's interesting that at that time you'd the flavor of that experience would be that that impersonal aspect would be mm-hmm. yeah, recognized as opposed to you know it, I think it's common for us to project our mm-hmm the workings of our normal emotional self onto something like that. Mm-hmm. So how did, uh, uh, so from that then, uh, uh, how did the journey unfold? Um, so that was very early on. That was maybe around the period that I was just beginning to recognize that these uh, sort of private experiences that had happened to me, which uh, were so profoundly meaningful and felt like sort of the, orient, the the orientation point for my life, or I wanted to somehow make them into that. Mm-hmm. Around that time, I was beginning to to read spiritual literature from different traditions and realize, oh, okay, there are people have been doing this for as long as there have been people, and there is such a thing as a path, and however that looks, and which and whichever one you might choose, that's another so, so question. So you're a teenager but, at this point. Yeah, maybe 19, 20 at that point. Okay. And I began to recognize that um, there was a, an extraordinary body of wisdom developed in many different cultures and traditions from all over the world that could speak to this uh, sense of longing and being haunted and aspiration that I was experiencing that I found virtually no uh, mode of expression for in kind of contemporary mainstream American society. So, it's and it sounds like as well, um, or correct me if, I, if, I, if I'm mistaken about this, um, that y- your your familial context, your your family was not um, resonating with anything like no, this. No, no, no. They thankfully they were uh, not uh, overtly hostile, but ah, okay. but they never understood it. Uh, to this day, my parents have been very sweet about it, but uh-huh. but they don't get it. <laughs> but they're willing to tolerate it because they love you. I su- I presume. Yeah. The, the thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. Do you have any siblings uh, as well? I have a half brother uh, who uh, I've managed to sort of get entangled in some projects with Parvati Ball, which he's been uh, very interested and intrigued by. But uh, he's mm-hmm. he's a very creative guy um, and sort of open and intrigued, but. Uh, you know, not not particularly drawn to any spiritual tradition. Mm-hmm. Okay, so just to sort of flesh flesh out briefly the your your personal trajectory, you're you're reading this stuff, realizing that mm-hmm. there are um, people who have spent a great deal of uh, time, energy, um, and practice time. Yeah. Um, 
creating ways to 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 touch the mystery yes and um what happened to you after that 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 went along to um support this direction uh so i became a, a sort of a professional spiritual seeker for quite a few years i also described myself as a spiritual slut in that time because i was oh dear oh. tell me all about it <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was I was uh, visiting all kinds of spiritual teachers and communities from every you know every possible variety uh, that was sort of mystically or spiritually oriented, and and, and visiting them um, was what was that like for you? Uh, well, it helped me discover what I was looking for and what I wasn't looking for. Oh, okay. Inter- interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in that that process of discernment, just as mm-hmm. a as kind of clarifying what what you found in that in that scape in terms of you know so what what how would you say what clarified for you what you were looking for and what did you see that you were clear that you weren't looking for? Yeah, well, I I um I guess there were kind of two poles in my search in those days. One was a experience that I had in Israel. And I had grown up Jewish, but again, very little connection to the tradition, didn't speak Hebrew, didn't have a bar mitzvah. Mm. But I did go to Israel right after high school uh, as part of a sort of a search process. And I and I discovered that there was extremely potent and powerful mystical experience and work occurring over there. Um, and that was very striking to me. So that was the one very, very traditional, orthodox, um, heavily belief-oriented tradition that I explored, basically just because it was my own heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the other extreme, I was exploring contemporary, uh, mystically-oriented spiritual communities in the U.S., and often... Not uh, just in Berkeley, but throughout the country. Yeah, yeah. And, and so... What I clarified is that I was not looking for a belief system. I was not looking for a, a something that would explain all of uh, all of life and contemporary life and the future in terms of some uh, religious narrative. Um, what I was looking for was uh, something that would deepen my own direct experience of the sacred and some discipline and way of life and practice that would allow me to do that. And I... Mm. Uh, while I found uh, that traditional Jewish observance ha- certainly had the potential to do that, mm-hmm. uh, in the end, the, uh, the that w- that wasn't the home that I found, and and the degree of emphasis on belief and and sort of the traditional um, structure of the religious practice was quite an obstacle in my case. So. I found uh, eventually found a home in this uh, Western Baal lineage. Okay, and and so uh, one of the things in your, uh, that um, caught my attention in what you just said was the was the the issue of belief. Mm-hmm. And so now, many years later, um, what what what's your um, has there been an evolution of how you understand belief from from the point you just described or the understanding you had when you were uh, much younger or and and if so um how has that evolution uh, uh, what course has it taken that's an interesting question so i guess i would say um 
you know, I realized I, I wasn't looking for a religious philosophy to explain everything to me. Okay. Um, however, uh, I think I was looking for a structure uh, of, of meaning um, mm-hmm. to sort of bolster me and, and help me develop a sense of purpose in the midst of a kind of mainstream society here in the U.S. that I found uh, empty and um, uh, difficult to live with and uh, difficult to find any sort of sense of meaning and greater purpose. And uh, human relationships have always been very meaningful to me and and creative work and art of various kinds, particularly Mm. writing and theater and to some degree music have always been meaningful to me, but I, 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 the person that I was as a young man, I needed some really big meaning. You know, I needed some purpose, some sense that I was doing something to serve something uh, or else I wasn't going to make it. I was not going to, I would not have had the, the resolve to cope with the sort of uh, onslaught of conventional mainstream life and, and the value system that it had. Would you Would you say that the... At the time, you were looking for a meaning that you could, let's say, articulate verbally, mm-hmm. as opposed to oh, a, yeah. a, a meaning that is just a lived sense of yes. purposefulness. Yes, exactly. And that's sort of where I was going in response to, to Rob's question was, so for many, many, many years, uh, that sense of I'm a spiritual practitioner, I'm part of a lineage, I, I have a spiritual teacher, we are doing uh, by definition, by virtue of the fact that we put so much attention and we've made so many sacrifices and we do daily spiritual practice and we live in community and all of these things that we do, by virtue of that, um, we are inherently um, doing some kind of work, spiritual work, inner work, that provides that sense of meaning. Um, And over time, that entire structure and framework has come to be less meaningful to me, ironically. Mm -hmm. And I I don't uh, begrudge myself that. I don't believe that all of that was completely false by any means. But a lot of the categories that uh, informed my spiritual practice for many, many years no longer mean very much to me. A lot of the dualities between people who are doing real spiritual work and mm. sort of that being implied or assumed because of the fact that they're part of a community, they're part of a tradition, they have a teacher and those kinds of things as opposed to people who are just out there living their life who aren't doing spiritual work, like all of that is pretty much gone for me at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, because my experience has been that uh, spiritual tradition and lineage and practice and community work with the teacher and all of these things are, are, are incredibly rich options in life. Uh, and they have the potential, and I, I've I've seen and experienced in many cases, and 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 in my own case, I feel uh, very grateful, very grateful to my teachers, grateful to my community, to my sangha mates, to for what I feel has been an incredibly rich process of learning mm-hmm. for me and for many others. And at the same time, I've also seen that. All of those um, structures can also 
also be an impediment to growth and learning. Um, well, maybe it's not even the structures. Maybe it's the belief in the structures as the support for growth and learning, the belief in them as a support for because because that's kind of kind of the inference I would draw from mm-hmm. from 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 what you're saying here is, yeah, is that questioning that but is important. I think I think you know one of the things that my teachers used to say is every path has its strengths and its weak areas every you know however you want to cut the pie however you approach spiritual practice there's going to be certain dangers to the particular way that you do it mm-hmm. and I would say that the structures uh, of spiritual community and having a spiritual teacher and particularly the teachings uh, within any given community and tradition, those structures themselves have some uh, potential dangers and pitfalls in them. And and, and I'll just give one simple example. So, you know, professionally I work with organizations, usually national parks, to help them... uh, articulate their purpose and be aligned to that purpose and create a positive environment in which people can bring out the best in people and and those kinds of things. And so in the course of working with clients in the field of organization development, I, we often come up against people's um, resistance to change and sort of identification. My whole identity is wrapped up in this job as it has been and that it continue to be the way it is and the organization that continue to be the way it is and 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 the biggest obstacles to change are always in the human aspect right Mm -hmm. so uh, what i've observed in the communities that i've been part of and in you know some initial research about sort of other communities and and especially looking at the problems that so many spiritual communities have right it's so predictable that there would be scandals and abuses of power and then you know i mean it, it's almost like a script you could just you could a b c d e f g mm-hmm. um and so for those of us who who care about spiritual community and who have devoted our lives in many years to this yeah, I think it's important for us to recognize that, to look at it, to learn from it, and to grow from it. So so when, in my own little kind of personal process of trying to do that, I have seen how some of those tendencies of being afraid to change or to question and so on and so forth that I've seen exist in, in professional settings sometimes exist in an even more extreme form in spiritual community because of the meaning that we've invested, just as you're saying, uh, is even more intense. It's not just, okay, this is my job and I go and I work here, but you know, it's like, no, this is my identity. You know, if you're on a spiritual path, then that's going to be very core to your whole identity. And so, uh, that very process of identification and the intense meaning that we invest, uh, can, uh, it seems to me it's, that's an inherent danger, mm-hmm. that it become a trap and it actually prevent us from continuing to open and open and open more and more as we go through our spiritual life. Yeah, it's an, an interesting uh, point because there's a tension of the meaning. You have to have a, a strong sense of meaning yes. in order to for the path to be effective. Right. 
And as you said, I think uh, particularly, uh, and it certainly was true in my experience, that early on the meaning was had the, the color that you were describing, which yeah. was uh, it was a story or a narrative about me uh, in in doing something right. that uh, made a difference. Right. And, and, and that was very helpful for me and, and, right. and, and kept me coming back and kept me you know focused. And I think in a way we all have to have that. We do. I guess the uh, maybe what I, I a sense that you're getting at is if that sense of meaning doesn't uh, undergo this shift that uh, we were alluding to a moment ago, which is a lived sense of meaning yeah. that's distinct from a narrative sense of meaning, then external circumstances and their change can be very threatening to a narrative sense of meaning. Yeah. Not so much to a lived sense of meaning, because that, that, my experience is that lived sense of meaning is a more robust or resilient, to use a contemporary term, uh, 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 embodiment that right. that is open by its very nature to uh, all sorts of different possibilities. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's precisely what um, ultimately carries carries us through, but but the process of questioning um, and having, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm very much involved in this process right now because for many, many years I lived in a spiritual, particular spiritual community and I had deep bonds of friendship and connection and, and sort of now I'm, I'm, I'm a free agent is the term that I, I spoke with my, my former teacher about when, when I sort of went, went my own way. <clears throat> and so I've been in that process of having to reinvent and rediscover uh, the my own uh, connection to these so, spiritual practices and teachings. And how long have you been in that process now? Uh, probably about four years. Um, yeah, about four years. I'm curious that when you first... Um, uh, sort of, as it were, struck out on your own. Mm -hmm. um, did you find that, uh, like, dislocating? Was that, uh, was that Tremendously, difficult? tremendously dislocating. And I, and I think that's, I felt uh, lost. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and that, at the time when I, you know, when I would speak to friends about it, I, it was like, that's good. It's good. The way that I'm using that word was, was sort of like, that's where I actually am. That's where I need to be. I need to find, to rediscover and reinvent. Um, but it was very uh, lonely and disorienting. Um, and at the same time, it was very clear. It was, um, I, I truly did not have any uh, desire to leave my community. And, and it, it just eventually became clear to me that uh, there was no way to continue growing. Uh, in some in some sense, I could say that I had too much baggage and I was too invested in my community uh, to be able to stay within that community um, and continue to grow. And to, I, you know, I just I didn't plan to leave, but there came a point where I I just I couldn't stay. Mm -hmm. So the investment that you're talking about that you had in 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 that whole context. Um, remained strong and yet there was this other um countervailing um impulse arising yeah. within you is that is that is that a accurate way to, to view it yeah and do you know i mean was the countervailing impulse 
deriving from an interior process of questioning that became more and more central to you, or was there some other genesis for it? Um, it was both. It was very much an internal process, and it was also based on um, changes and events and things that had occurred in, in the spiritual community that I was practicing in for so many years. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's partly what led me to, to do some research into sort of other spiritual communities and troubles they'd had and challenges. In my community, there was the, the, the challenges um, I would describe as relatively ordinary human kinds of challenges. There was no incidence of sexual assault or serial predatory behavior or things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were some, some dynamics that um, were very troubling. Um, and there were some human events, you know, specific events that happened in people's lives where people weren't honest and kind of the usual dramas that happen, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in human life. So all of that um, really just caused a sort of a reckoning process. Um, someone in the community who was in a leadership role as a student um, died unexpectedly in a car accident. Mm. And sort of subsequent to that, uh, a lot of things came out um, about their life. And that caused many people to say, wait a second, what's... You know, what are the unhealthy components in this community that we've all been devoted to for so many years? And out of that reckoning process, quite a few people left and moved on, and and some, uh, quite a few stayed as well. Mm -hmm. So it was really both. It was that process causing me to engage my own internal questioning process that, um, and then struggling to find a way to honor the deep connection that I felt with all the members of my sangha and with my teacher. And at the same time, uh, to try to um, contribute to a process of questioning and exploration that I I couldn't stay without engaging. And, And really just in the end, I was like, you know what, it's just... What I need in terms of that process of exploration and where this community is is there i i I can't help with that mm-hmm. and I can't really stay uh and continue to to feel like I'm being honest and authentic to myself and so that was where uh we parted ways so so I'm curious out of that uh how you see the role of a spiritual community um I mean, there's because there's, there's a lot of different modalities. Obviously, mm-hmm. uh, there are uh, teachers who sort of teach almost in a Western style, where people come to classes or sessions and things right. like that. Uh, and then there are uh, there's, there's even the, the client uh, yeah. um, client model that's, right. that's becoming popular in the uh, Buddhist circles. Um, and uh, and yet, you are part of a community that. Uh, if if people didn't actually live on site together, they lived nearby, and there was a, mm-hmm. like a central yeah. uh, community center or ashram, uh, right. and uh, a teacher that was the uh, f- uh, focus of kind of the organizational uh, schema. And I'm interested in just your your view on like how uh, what 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 is the function of that? You know, because. Yeah. Because and, and and the parameters I'm looking for are there, there's the spiritual practice and the discipline aspect. There's having a life in which 
with spiritual practices kind of like front and center and and, right. and prioritize, which you don't get, you know, living right. in a dorm or something like that. And then there's the community relationship and the mm -hmm. uh, both the friction and the pleasant sides of that, right. which can be useful food for work. Absolutely. So uh, just uh, having lived in communities and sort of studied this problem, what yeah. how do you how did you see it and how do you see it now? Yeah. Um, well, I was very drawn to a traditional spiritual model of working with a teacher, living in community, all those things. That's what I was looking for, and that's what I chose. Um, and, you know, during this process of the challenges that my community went through, which, again, in my mind, are not really headline-making challenges. Um, they're more... Uh, th that's my take on it. Um and then researching other communities and seeing very similar patterns of problems recurring over and over and over. Um, so there were a point, there was a point where I absolutely was really disillusioned and struggling and particularly with the patterns related to male leaders and the, the ways that they seem to tend to, uh, their shadows tended to show up. And I was uh, just, like I just was like I I I I'm not I am I will never again uh, sort of be an apologist for power structures in which women are not treated with dignity and somehow that is excused or uh, whether it's in a mild form. Uh, quote-unquote mild form um, uh, in which again there's no nothing uh, overtly abusive occurring or whether it's in a very extreme uh, case in which there's like again serial predation on the part of a of a male teacher so those were some of the issues that I was struggling and wrestling with so I'm um, just to just to clarify um, um, in the communities that you were in they were although they were Western they certainly modeled on a uh, very traditional uh, a traditional Indian style yes but and you know not only Indian I mean I think part of our orientation was you know in my lineage we were looking to do something very traditional in a kind of contemporary eclectic and somewhat experimental Western form but but what we were looking at was you know how do spiritual communities work and we were drawing from many different cultures which is characteristic of Baal tradition itself is drawing from many traditions and you know there's a clear archetype and model there of having a spiritual teacher having students and certain kinds of protocols and hierarchy and so on and so forth and we were like okay that's what humans have always done and that's what right. we're going to do some version of so yes it was very very traditional but the um as a contemporary uh uh community though uh, I'm, I'm just i'm interested in how the male as leader um and the uh uh if not overt the uh, uh the covert minimalization of mm -hmm. female leadership right. manifests because my observation of uh these kinds of communities uh, uh uh including the ones that you were involved in is that there's definitely a hierarchy right and it happens to be that the teachers uh uh were male right 
but I didn't see, you know, like the next tier down didn't seem to be distinguished by right. female to male. It was like there was just the next tier down and, uh, you know, and, and the uh, hierarchy, there was a hierarchy of the teacher and then, sure. you know, senior students. But at that point, I didn't I didn't notice as much uh, a breakdown in terms of uh, male female roles. And I'm curious if if you saw yeah, something. No, I didn't. No, I didn't see something like that in, in the communities that I've been been part of. Um, but there's just there's so many instances of m- male leaders mm-hmm. um, behaving poorly in one way or another, and we're so used to having power structures in which uh, male there you know there are men at the top leading, um, and then to me the very extreme cases. The Harvey Weinstein's, the cases of spiritual teachers who absolutely, you know, looked for, sought out um, emotionally unstable women that they could really sexually take advantage of and so on and so forth. So those are very extreme cases. But there's a continuum. Um, And so um, I think this was going back to, I'm trying to recall the original kind of question or line, but well, it's about the function of uh, uh, the, the function of the guru, right? So, uh, and so the function of the community and the function of the guru. Yeah. So, so I was I was wrestling with all of these things, and I was wrestling with ways that I had um, um, not trusted my own instincts or not spoken up about things because I was in a model like that. And again, these were things that were not extreme. Um, in terms of the the scandals that you hear about and and read about in the papers. Um, But they were there. Um, And so I was wrestling with all of those things. And and in that process of wrestling, I I got to the point of saying, okay, so what what do I believe about a, a guru function or the role of a very traditional spiritual teacher in hierarchy? And what I came to personally was that uh, I believe it's it's a deeply important role that exists in the world. And part of the reason that I, I came to that was that um, there, the student-teacher relationship, um, as it exists in pretty much all traditional cultures in some form or another, and often not uh, exclusive to spiritual life, Often in terms of trades or arts, there's a, I mean, you know, friends that I've met recently uh, who are Indian musicians talk about uh, going to India and studying with their musical gurus and they lived in their house and cooked their foods, right? So, so this concept of apprenticeship and this deep, that, that that form of traditional student-teacher relationship provides a vehicle for a, a, a kind of a love, um, and a kind of transmission that um, we don't have very many forms for in the modern West, mm-hmm. and that's but it's a deep human need, and it's hardwired into us. And so that was where I landed. Was you know there is this is this deeply important role, um, and so I was not willing to um, throw that out and say, well, I'm going to be a person who advocates spiritual practice, but says, you know, all this hierarchy and but like, it's all got to go. It's all, but I, nor was I, I was also no longer willing to, um, to just adhere to it. Um, and not, 
be very rigorous uh, and more courageous in my personal accounting and reckoning and looking at power dynamics and, and those kinds of things. So it was kind of a both for me. Mm-hmm. Well, this is, this is very interesting to me because um, certainly I've been for many years wrestling with this, this whole question of hierarchy as well. And, you know, it's, it's different for different people in different positions as they've experienced it. But, but this, um, it seems to me that you're, the process that you're, you're describing is one way to describe at least the beginning, if not the full flowering of, of what I might call greater spiritual maturity. That is to say, it's when we, you know, you were talking about belief earlier, and sure, when we first show up um, in a in a in a context which seems to offer so much that we feel starved for, yeah, um, it's completely understandable right. and natural, even to you know, um, chow down. Embrace it wholeheartedly. <laughs> yeah. Go for it. Yeah. Sign on the dotted line. I'm, uh, Sign know, on yeah. the dotted line every day. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like, like renewing, renewing. And, yeah. and yeah. but then, uh, you know, uh, unless one is completely insensitive, this process of coming to question what I'm actually, you know, um, what I'm actually doing. The, some of the stuff we, of, uh, that you wrote that we read um, in preparation for this conversation mimics the the question. It seems to me that you know our our teacher used to say, um, advocate people asking, you know, who am I? What am I doing? Why am I doing it? Yeah. And and that that basic question how however particularly it gets articulated or set of questions um, is the doorway to maturity it seems to me um, and unless we it, it doesn't mean that just because we go through the doorway right we're mature <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but it is a requirement to attain to some some sort of yes. maturity and the mature and partly the maturity I, I think manifests as being able to hold opposites yes. in your in your heart simultaneously yep. without having to say this one's good and that one's bad right. that kind of thing to picking and choosing yeah uh, another aspect that um uh, I was thinking about in our, in our own work with our teacher mm-hmm. he never configured a spiritual school or a community as a long-term thing he, yeah. he, he tended to think of it he, right. he'd use the analogy of this is kind of like college you know you get your degree and then you go off and uh-huh. uh, you know right. put it to work in your life and um, and that's what's kind of interesting to me because communities uh, begin to have a different dynamic um, or they have a different dynamic than just that like yeah. like uh, uh, in our relationship with our teacher the, the that spiritual relationship was uh, um, that you know there's a purpose for being here and there's there's something that you're going to learn and at some point uh you're going to go off and both mm-hmm. to integrate it and learn other things from other people but uh it wasn't a it wasn't construed as a forever thing and i i find what's interesting with communities and this isn't just i think you you know you mentioned in some of the stuff you wrote to us about organizations in general i mean this isn't unique to a spiritual community but communities right. 
take on a kind of an inertia or a kind of um, organization organism like uh, you know propagation of its own existence right. in the future, right. so that some of these issues that you describe happen partly because the aims of the community begin to supersede the aims of the individual practitioners in the community, and and then the holding back is not so much a even a function of cowardice is almost more like uh, uh, like not standing up and yelling in a theater. You know, you're, you don't right. want to disrupt the show. Right, 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 exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I guess that's, I mean, I assume that the, the folks who are listening to this show are, are people who care deeply about spiritual life and probably some form of spiritual community. And I know that that's one of the the big uh, challenges that uh, that I experienced with with my community and and my former community may still be wrestling with it for all I know, uh, but that you know we were very dedicated to studying the shadow and to studying our mechanical and habitual reactions and responses on the individual basis as practitioners. We staked our whole identity as practitioners on that, and I would uh, you know I I to this day feel that um, my my sangha mates really demonstrated tremendous courage in doing that on an individual basis. When these events happened, sort of in the natural developmental course of, of the life of the community, and caused this reckoning experience, during the period that I was there, we were not able collectively to make the transition to looking at the shadow in the community as a whole and to looking at the mechanical habitual reactions and responses including sort of dharmic responses that we were parroting that were keeping us stuck uh, in some ways that was my experience at that time that's what i was trying to, to 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 find a way to help encourage and what eventually i was like you know i'm not the person who's going to be able to do this at this point in time i can't I, I'm not able to help in this way, right? So I guess for, for, for folks out there um, who are devoted to traditional practice and maybe working with teachers and, and working with communities, that, that would be um, you know, a potential challenge that I would offer uh, is that at a certain point, um, you know, perhaps in the natural maturation process of the community or of yourself as a practitioner, you likely will uh, go through some kind of questioning and to be able to to have the courage to really look at your culture of your organization, your habits, your assumptions, your routines, and and be able to do things that like step into the unknown, let go of all your familiar uh, coordination points, um, go back to the very beginning and ask, who am I? Why am I here? What are we doing? And, and be willing to, uh, in the language of my teachers, leave no stone unturned and study untruth, not sort of live in an idealized realm of, you know, our dharma is so, our teaching, there's the wisdom in our tradition is so pure and flawless that we're going to cling to that uh, and perhaps risk avoiding an honest-to-God reckoning with with, you know what we're what we're doing right now. Yeah, and and it seems to me that that it's not just you know when uh, when when you know you're talking about um, the life of the community itself and and that's 
and how that's dynamic yeah. and, cha- and changes over time. But it, but it also, you know, we're we're starting to find in here in um, the West that um, teachers die, even if they didn't have, you know, even if the community seemed to be intact and flourishing. And then the teacher dies, mm. and then things change. Then what? Yeah. yeah. Um, and 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 you know what happens to hierarchy then, um, and what happens to my relationship to my thoughts, to my assumptions about hierarchy that I've not questioned all this right. time. Yeah. So so it's 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 it, it, it's a wider thing, a more pervasive thing than just you know. Situations where, where as you know, as you were saying before, you know, we've there are lots of scandals out there, right. lots of mistakes that that, sure. that get made, um, but there's also just this um, process of things changing as as uh, as people pass on and yeah. uh, um, things change that way. So yeah. I'm curious. Uh, you, uh, we were having dinner with some friends last night, and then. In some ways, this, uh, this kind of topic came up. I think the consensus of some of the um, uh, folks who were like had been uh, teachers in Buddhist tradition yeah. um, was that um, you know community, you know, like a, a spiritual community, ultimately is an impossibility. Mm. Uh, they, they they were um, had a much more jaundiced view of um, that mm. that these kinds of issues are inevitable. Yeah. And right. that uh, I think uh, this one friend cited the uh, Sufi tradition as probably being more the exception to the rule that uh, they kind of understood that at some point you just have to blow the community up mm-hmm. in one form or another, <laughs> or um, it will get blown up yeah, for you. Yeah, yeah right. and 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 that that was sort of baked in by design. And mm-hmm. and you see that with like if you look at the uh, like the Gurdjieff work, it's often the case that you know. The heat gets turned up more and more with the, mm-hmm. the community, and the community is never comfortable. And it's not a lifestyle; it's mm-hmm. a uh, uh, a place of uh, uh, kind of agitated work. Yeah. Uh, and, right. and again, it's not meant to be a forever thing. It's it's a it's a kind of a pressure cooker for a particular purpose. Mm-hmm. And I, yet, I see uh, other communities, um, uh, including you know the communities that uh, you were involved in that. Are actually trying to affect a you know a more communal project. You know, Absolutely. And there's uh, schools, families, and I, I've known yeah. people who moved expressly because they wanted a sure. place, a sane place to raise their families. Yeah, and it's serving a, and, it, and it's different than that other model. So yeah. I guess so yeah. my, that's a kind of a long-winded way of asking you your, the question for you is: I mean, do you do you fall now with your experience on the side of like uh, communities ultimately um, sow the seeds of their own kind of destruction or do you see that there might be a way in which a community could be sustainable if it has the kind of resilience that you're pointing to of being able to take on at a community level introspection besides just encouraging and cultivating it Mm -hmm. at the individual level that's a good question I mean one of the things that um my community and 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 my former teacher was looking at was uh seeing things for the long haul right so this whole western bowel lineage is a is a very young experiment of founding a new lineage and drawing from this bowel lineage uh, tradition and and uh, yogi ramsar kumar lineage that we heard the chant from earlier and so on and 
Um, and so we're in maybe the second generation sort of of that at this point. And, and uh, we were at one point wh- when we met with uh, Parvati Baul and her husband uh, Ravi, uh, my former teacher was, was asking, you know, for some advice from their perspective from this ancient culture in which the, you know, this Baul tradition had been going for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And a comment that Parvati's husband made was, he said, you know, you have to, in the course of, of hundreds and hundreds of years, a lineage goes through many different things, and there are great high points, and then there are valleys, and that's the nature of it. And it's not dependent on any one teacher, no matter how inspired they may have been. And So that was an interesting uh, perspective that we were working to incorporate. Um, and so I guess, you know, from that standpoint... Um, a lineage or a tradition or a community, uh, hopefully that kind of view helps us disidentify with the intensity of the immediate experience and be able to ask some of those questions and open up a sense of possibility. I mean, I think the risk uh, whenever a teacher passes is to create a um, a museum mm. to the work that once was there with the teacher as opposed to wrestle with the question how am i going to make this work alive inside me and 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 others if if i if i can uh and maybe that long view you know helps in in that process got it well speaking of long views we're at the hour so uh yeah but we'll certainly want to uh, continue uh, some of these themes and 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 i also want to get into some of the other ways in which because you've had um, you know the uh, biography that Stuart read earlier uh, suggests that you've been out there in the world in in ways beyond the spiritual community um, that uh, you've been uh, discussing and and um, and I and and I'm interested in how s- spiritual practitioners interact in the wider world with the wider world. So I, I want to get into that as well in, in the second hour. Great. Look forward to it. Excellent. You're listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we feature an in-studio conversation with Joshua Levitt. Joshua Levitt has pursued spiritual practice intensively since the late 1980s, including extensive stays in Israel and India, living for five years on an ashram in the U.S., and working closely with spiritual teachers from the Baal tradition, which originated in Bengal, India. We'll return to our show after a short musical break. Musical interludes on this show are from a a companion CD to the book The Baal Tradition, Sahaj Vision, East and West. The next piece is called Ananda Baulo with vocals by Sanatan Das Baul.
Yeah. 